Well, I have really enjoyed preaching this longer series about salvation history, and I hope it's helped you sort of put some things together about the Bible's story and and how the Bible fits, and um, and I, I, that's one of the things I'm passionate about is understanding how the Bible fits together, how the world, uh, uh, how this thing that Jesus did impacts all of our lives. Uh, and, and I thought I was going to finish that sermon last week, but I, I've decided I wanted to do one more week to sort of debrief, to, to, to talk about some of the implications for this salvation history. And it helps. I was helped by a scholar named Matthew Bates, who wrote two different books, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, and another one called Gospel Allegiance. And, and he, uh, in those books, helped me sort of put together some things that I've been thinking, but but uh, that, that he was able to sort of cement for me and um, to give me some biblical basis for what I was thinking and what I was feeling. So, so today I want to look at this idea of the gospel, the good news. And, and what is this news and why is it good? Um, let's just begin with the term. The term good news comes from the Greek word euangelion. Um, which is a word you probably have never heard, but you have heard words like evangelism and evangelical. Those are based on the word euangelion. And uh, it just kind of means good news. And then it gets translated into the uh, the old English word God's spell. Uh, God meaning good, not meaning God. Um, and spell meaning news. So that's just another word for good news. And when they then put the Bible into English, it, it retains this word, uh, gospel. And originally, euangelion was a word the Romans used when um, when they would the Romans would capture a new city or they would win a war. They would put out a proclamation throughout the entire Roman Empire, and someone would come into your town and hang flyers and uh, announce an ecclesia, a gathering, which is the word we eventually used for church in the New Testament. And uh, they'd say, good news, euangelion, we, we defeated someone else. We won another war. Um, and the, the early church seems to pick up on this word, gospel, good news, uh, and uh, it says it about Jesus. And in fact, the, uh, uh, the, the books about Jesus are called the gospels. It's the good news according to Matthew, the good news according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke. And so today, let's look at what is this news and what makes it so good. Now, the way modern Christians talk about it is that the good news is that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Um, and, and that's important, and that's true, and I, I don't want to knock that as being untrue, but, but what I do want to say is that the Bible never says that that's the gospel. The Bible talks about the gospel in all kinds of different ways, and we're going to sort of un pack that. Um, and so we got to look at this idea of the gospel being so much more than that, and especially when you think about salvation history. Salvation history shows us that this thing is about way more than my sins and your sins. It's about way more than the cross. Yes, central to the cross, but, but it's something bigger. And so I want to get this bigger sense of what the good news is. So let's start with Jesus. Let's look at several passages uh, throughout scriptures. I, I didn't read a scripture because we're going to read several throughout this sermon uh, to think about how the Bible talks about gospel. 
Um, well, first in the book of Mark, we and similar in some of the other gospels, we get a summary of Jesus coming and preaching the gospel. Now think about this. If the gospel is Jesus died on the cross for your sins, then Jesus never preached the gospel. He never preached that because he didn't really talk about his death very much. And yet, when you look at the Gospels themselves, they talk about Jesus proclaiming the Gospel. Here's Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It says, Now after Jesus, John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel, the good news. So when Jesus talks about the Gospel, He's actually not talking about his death. He's talking about the time being fulfilled. That's saying, look at all these Old Testament passages. Look at all this stuff that salvation history is built to. Now it's here. The time is fulfilled. And and what what is at hand? The kingdom. For Jesus, the gospel is about his kingdom. Now, we're not used to this language of kingdom because we don't live in a kingdom. Um, When we talk about nations, we tend to think geographically. We tend to think borders. But what made a kingdom a kingdom is actually the king. The king at the center to hold everything together. So for Jesus, this is all about the kingdom of God, of which he, in fact, Jesus, in fact, is at the center. That's the good news that Jesus proclaims. And and if you think about that then, um, you you start to see why the titles around Jesus are so important, right? Um, When when Jesus is uh, uh, called Christ, the term Christ isn't just some, uh, what it isn't a last name, first of all. It wasn't Mary Christ, Joseph Christ, and Jesus Christ. No, 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 no. The term Christ, Christos, is is actually a term related to anointing oil, and it's the Greek equivalent of the word Messiah in the Old Testament. Okay, It's this term that that this royal one from the line of David is going to come and be Savior, going to be Messiah, and has been promised. And so um, whenever you hear Jesus Christ, it's an official term. It's not just his name. When you wanted to call somebody by their name, they didn't have last name, so you either said something like Jesus, son of Joseph, right? So you referred to the parent or Jesus of Nazareth. So you uh, referred to the town that they're from. Um, but, but Christ is this messianic term. And then a lot of times in the New Testament, Jesus is associated with this term, Lord, okay? Master, I mean, it's nearly a king term that they're in charge. Jesus is Lord, in fact, one of the things you had to do as a Roman citizen was you had to proclaim that Caesar is Lord. So the fact that the early church picks this word, euangelion, and then uh, picks up this term, good news, and then picks up on this term of Lord, that Jesus is Lord, they're saying, we've got good news that's that's not Roman good news. Okay, Ecclesia, we've, we're going to do gatherings that are not Roman gatherings, and we're going to call Jesus Lord because Caesar isn't really Lord. And Caesar was considered one of the gods in those days. So so when Jesus is called Christ, when he's called Messiah, when he's called Lord, he's fitting into all these terms. And when he talks about the gospel, he talks about the kingdom, the kingship, 
the rule of God on this world, and he is the one at the center of that. Well, then what about the Apostle Paul? Well, there, there are, Paul, Paul uses the term gospel a number of times, but there are two particular places where he seems to summarize elements of the gospel. And what's fascinating about these, both of these places is that Paul talks about them in different ways. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. So this is the intro to the book of Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, okay, this big term, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised, now he seems to summarize what is this gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and holy scriptures. So first part of the gospel, it's from old, according to scriptures. Concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh. Okay, so we got this connection to David, the king, becoming flesh. He was declared the son of God in power, according to the Holy Spirit of holiness, and by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, Jesus Christ our Lord, see so you putting the terms together, okay, and, and here emphasizing the resurrection, um, em- mentioning the death, but really emphasizing the resurrection over the death. Um, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith, obedience of faith, for the sake of his name, among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Okay, so, so Paul has this sense of the, this story of Jesus and it fitting in with the old part and that now we're supposed to have obedience to this uh, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, see, Paul has this sense that the gospel is about Jesus' kingship also. And uh, Paul writes this ridiculously long sentence to start Romans. In Greek, there was no punctuation. So it's hard for translators to sort of know when a sentence stops. But he sort of writes this big, long sentence to say this is the gospel. Now, if you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5, you're going to find Paul talking about the gospel again, but actually talking about it in a little bit different way. He has some different elements here. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news I preach to you, which you have received, in which you now stand, and by which you are being saved. Okay, so the gospel is something you receive, something you believe. So we'll get to that part later. Um, For I delivered to you of first importance that what I also received, that Christ died according to... Uh, died for your sins according to the scriptures. So now we do have this piece. Christ died for your sins. It's part of the gospel. It's not the whole gospel, but it is part of the gospel. In accordance with the scriptures, again, Paul connecting this back to the previous chapters of the story. That he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Okay, it's still connecting to this previous story and appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, and then Paul goes on to talk about all the different people he appeared to, and then how he appeared to Paul himself. So Paul here, summarizing the gospel again, has some different elements, has some different pieces to the gospel. Um, and so if you were to go through all the different places, the New Testament talks about the gospel and try to make a list and define it, you come up with something like eight different components of the gospel. And uh, I'm going to give you the eight that, uh, that that scholar Matthew Bates 
lists out in salvation by allegiance alone. Part of it is that Jesus was pre-existed with the Father. In other words, Jesus always existed even before he became human and took on flesh, fulfilling promises to David. So he became flesh, part of, part of the line of David. He died for sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. On the third day he rose, according to the scriptures. He appeared to many, so he was definitely alive. He is seated at the right hand of God as Lord, um, and Jesus will come again to judge. So if you looked at all of the stuff that the Bible has to say about gospel, those are the eight main elements that are included. And central to that, if you really think about it, is, yes, the death, but really the kingship. Really that he is at the right hand of God. Really that he had a crown of thorns on his head on the cross and was labeled king of the Jews. So central to this is the kingship of Jesus when you understand how the Bible talks about gospel and how the salvation history fits together. Bates also makes the argument that uh, if you understand all these pieces, you understand that the Apostles' Creed is a great summary of the gospel. Now, the Apostles' Creed was not written by the Apostles. Written later, we know by the late 300s, it's around. But here's how it summarizes it. Some of you will remember repeating this in church. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. Okay, Jesus Christ, Lord. Catching the language? Who was conceived of the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the, the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So if you think about what the gospel is according to the Bible, the way, the way we're sort of laying it out here, it's this big story of Jesus that fits so well within salvation history. And uh, the Apostles' Creed captures it. It's like the early church tried to summarize it and knew this is what the gospel really was. And, and you see again the culmination. What's so important about Christ the Lord is his kingship. So yes, the death of Jesus is important, but, but it's so much more than that. It's so much more than that. And it's so much more than just saving me from my sins. It's about saving the world. It's about the whole world coming under the rule, the kingship of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And, and I love this way of talking about the gospel because it's so much uh, bigger. But also understand what's not in the gospel because we get this wrong so much. When we talk about the gospel as Jesus dying on the cross and saving me from my sins, we're including a piece of the gospel about my own salvation. But in the Bible, that's, that's totally separate. What did Paul say? Paul said, you receive the gospel. You believe in the gospel. So the gospel is something separate from your reception of the gospel. The gospel proper is this story of what Jesus has done and is doing in the world. And then you have to receive that. Your salvation, your part in accepting and living out that story 
is separate from the gospel itself. The gospel is something that you receive. So the question then becomes, how do you get in on the gospel? How do you get in on this thing? Okay, How do you receive this news so that it's good for you? Well, the emphasis on the Bible, and, and especially since the, uh, the Reformation, has been faith. You get in based on faith. But one of the things that, that uh, Matthew Bates and, and other scholars have brought up, and, and I am a firm believer in, is that our understanding of faith is rather small. Uh, that, that we think of faith as intellectual. I believe in Jesus. I believe he rose from the dead. I, that way, then I have faith. It's something like in my head. And we almost talk about faith as if faith is like believing in something even though the facts are against it. Like that's faith. Um, but that's not the way the Bible really talks about faith. Uh, and think about it this way. Satan has faith then. Satan knows Jesus is alive. Satan knows, believes in Jesus, has talked to Jesus, right? So if that's what saves you, Satan should be saved, right? No, part of the challenge comes from our understanding of this word faith. Um, that the word faith is, in Greek, this word uh, pistis. And pistis can come in a lot of different forms, but it can also mean a lot of different things. Um, sometimes it clearly means faith or belief. Okay, O ye of little faith, why do you doubt? That, that would be one of those situations where um, it really means faith. But when faith, when this word pistos is used in association with um, some kind of a, a royal term or a king or Caesar, okay, when Caesar is Lord, then you're supposed to have pistis, faith in Caesar. And there, it doesn't mean belief in Caesar, Okay, what it means is like faithfulness, or, or what a, maybe the better way to describe it is allegiance. Allegiance, that Caesar demands your allegiance. If Caesar is Caesar, or if your king is king, then you have to have faith. You have to have allegiance in Jesus. Now, that may sound strange to you to think about faith as allegiance, but I think it adds so much context. It fits this idea of the gospel being about Jesus' kingship, and it has a much better understanding of, of our response to that. And, and it helps me in particular uh, in several ways. One, if we understand uh, pistis as allegiance, it helps me understand why sometimes when I don't have faith, I, I can still follow Jesus. I mean, have you ever gotten there? Have you ever had that, that much doubt where you're like, I'm not sure I believe this. Maybe I'm going to lose my salvation. Oh, but if it's about my belief, then if I don't have belief, if I have some kind of doubts, then maybe I'm not really saved. But, but allegiance helps us through that because it says maybe it's not about believing all the time. Maybe it's about what you ultimately decide to follow. Right? I don't have to, I don't have to believe everything my king says. I don't have to trust everything. My, I can have my doubts. But if I keep following, I have allegiance then I have real faith. The other big question that I think this helps answer is the relationship between faith and works. And th this has always been a point of contention in the church. Uh, places like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 say, For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
Uh, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, so faith and works are different. It's not about... But, but first of all, if you go back and look at Ephesians 2, Paul is still using that Christ uh, the Lord uh, language, Jesus Christ language. So that means um, that maybe pistis should be read to mean allegiance. Um, but also, uh, I, I love this idea that uh, faith and works go together. Okay, so think about it this way we, we've got to separate earning from expectation. You are never going to earn your salvation, it's never going to happen. You never, but that doesn't mean that the gospel doesn't have expectations. Okay, doesn't have demands of a life transformed. Otherwise, a whole bunch of the Bible doesn't make sense because it encourages us to live uh, differently. And I love that, that this way of thinking about the gospel and about faith helps to bring faith and works together so that it's not just about intellectual believing, but it's about allegiance, and so it demands my action. I think that's great for the church uh, because we haven't always known what to do with evangelism and trying to share our faith, but, but this way of thinking helps us think about sharing this big story. And we haven't always known in the church what to do about discipleship because we, we've sort of made it so intellectual, but, but it's not. The goal of the church is to be in allegiance, to live in the loyalty to Jesus Christ, our King. My job as pastor isn't to change your thinking, it's to change the way you live and to coach you in how to give your allegiance to Jesus Christ, because that's really what faith is. Um, so maybe this is a little deeper sermon than you're used to. I used a couple Greek words, a lot of intellectual thinking. I hope it pushed your thinking a little bit. But I wanted to unpack what the gospel meant and what faith meant in light of salvation history so that we could all be challenged a little bit to, to think about this story of Jesus as good news for us and be challenged to have allegiance, not just intellectual faith, but actually live it out. Because that's the call of your life, to follow King Jesus, okay? to, to give your allegiance. And when the world pushes you to fear, when bosses pull you towards immoral behavior, when the media tries to convince you that some people are of more value than others, you'll say, nope, no fear. Fear is not Lord. Caesar is not Lord. Work is not Lord. Culture is not Lord. Jesus Christ is my Lord and my King. So wherever you go this week, whatever you're going through, may Jesus Christ, our King, rule in your hearts today and forever. Amen.